0: Hello, and thankful as we gather again for another study through the Gospel of John. I'm Colin, and today we turn our attention to the story of the woman at the well. Jews and Samaritans didn't mix much, but we'll see that Jesus not only went through Samaria, He did something unthinkable at the time. He spoke to a Samaritan woman. And what would compel the Son of God to go against strong cultural norms? Well, today Pastor Charles Broderson says it's because Jesus cares about people. He is drawn towards those in need and will cross man-made boundaries to reach anyone with his love a love we'll see that knows us through and through and satisfies our deepest longings we're in john chapter 4 with a message pastor charles Culling, jesus and the woman at the well so here on sunday mornings we are studying the gospel of john with this theme of life in his name life in the name of jesus now I think it's good every time you come to a biblical text to understand the broader context. And something that's so amazing about the Gospel of John is that John actually tells us why he wrote this book. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples. Those are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John makes it very clear that he has a very specific intention and purpose. He has not written an exhaustive account of the life and works of Jesus, but what he has collected, uh, he's curated in such a way that the reader, the hearer, might believe. And not just that they would believe, but they would believe specifically about the true nature of Jesus, that he is Messiah, he's the king of all kings, the one that the world is longing for, waiting for, who will bring God's righteous reign and rule to the earth. But not only that, he is the son of God. And that by believing this, by putting our trust in, by centering our lives in Jesus, that we would experience a certain quality of life. Life in his name is what John calls it. I think it's very interesting that John connects what we believe to the quality of life that we experience. So I think that this is a great opportunity for us to ask ourselves, what are we believing in? What are we centering our lives around? What gives us meaning? What gives us purpose? And do we have life in its name? See, each time we gather, whether we are Believers or unbelievers, whether we are religious or irreligious, we have this opportunity as we study the book of John to ask ourselves this deep, heart-searching question, what am I believing in? What am I trusting in? And do I have life in its name? I love this gospel, and I love this opportunity to come again and again to this deep, heart-searching question in order to recalibrate my life. I need this. You need this. We need this. Now, this morning, we come to the story that might be very familiar to some of us, the story of the Samaritan woman. And it's a powerful story. It's a story about a spiritually lost and thirsting individual. And it's another one of those stories in John where I think we so clearly see the heart of Jesus, Jesus, we've already been told that Jesus is the eternal God who stepped down out of glory, took on human flesh, became one of us, became subject to weakness and weariness, hunger, thirst, even death, in order to bring us life. And we see that clearly in this story. Jesus is pursuing this woman. The story is really a beautiful display of the love of God, the love of God that knows us so thoroughly through and through, and yet relentlessly pursues us. Now, in our passage, Jesus says this interesting phrase, and I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but he says this to the woman, God is seeking worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. Why? Why is God seeking worshipers? Is it because God is lonely? Or is it because God is needy? I think sometimes, actually, the way that we teach in our churches and the way that we can... um, The songs that we sing and maybe the way that we try to kind of get people excited, sometimes we can almost sound like God is in need of our praise. Okay, we got a really insecure, needy God right here. Can you guys kind of pump it up a few levels, you know? Sometimes it feels like that. But Scripture makes it very clear. Uh, I love this hymn, um, Thou Art Giving and Forgiving. ever blessing, ever blessed, wellspring of the joy of living, ocean's depth of happy rest. God is the source of all life, love, and goodness. There is no lack or need within God. Now, see, God seeks worshipers, in fact, because human beings are created by him. They're created for him. We're created to worship. We're created to center our lives around something, to live for something or to be driven by something. And so God in his kindness and his goodness, he seeks humans out so we can experience the very thing we were created for, God's love, God's friendship. God pursues us, Because he knows we cannot find fulfillment or true purpose apart from him. I think outside of scripture, the um, theologian, St. Augustine, has affected my life probably the most. And I haven't read, you know, exhaustively from him. But there is one quote that he said that has just been so instrumental in my life. And he said this. Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I just want to say that one more time. And maybe you just need to receive that this morning. Oh Lord, our hearts are restless. Excuse me, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The story of the woman at the well clearly portrays, it is not, as we so often think or even the way that we talk, humanity who is seeking after God. That is true. We're worshipers. We're seekers. We're seeking meaning and purpose and fulfillment. That's true. But even more so, it is God who pursues us. It is God who pursues us. I love this quote from Roy Hessian. He wrote a book called We Would See Jesus, and this is a quote taken out of it. It says, where there is need, there is God. Listen to this. Where there is sorrow, misery, unhappiness, suffering, confusion, folly, oppression, there is the I am. I wonder how many of us think that way. Like, if this morning we described our gathering this way, how was it? Oh, there was sorrow, misery, unhappiness, suffering, confusion, folly, oppression. God was there. No, of course not. We're like, oh, I felt good, felt pumped up afterwards, felt encouraged, you know, positive, encouraging message this morning, thank you. But truly, I mean, as much as we do believe that God is in the midst and he is the bringer of joy, God pursues the sorrowful, the miserable, bless you, the oppressed, the suffering, the confused. Sounds a lot like San Francisco, doesn't it? Maybe Seattle, LA, what you think about New York. What we think about these major cities, these hubs, God is in the midst of these cities and he is at work to rescue And redeem. This is what God does. He relentlessly pursues needy, thirsting, hungry humans. He goes on, yearning to turn man's sorrow into bliss whenever humans will let him. It is not the thirsty seeking water, oh, it's living water seeking the thirsty. It's not the hungry seeking bread, but bread from heaven seeking the hungry. It is not the sad seeking joy, but joy seeking the sad. It is not emptiness seeking fullness, but rather fullness seeking emptiness. And it is not merely that he supplies our need, but he becomes himself the fulfillment of our need. Love that. I think this story really puts on display that, you know, as we might call it, that missionary heart of God, that Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven steps down into our spiritually bankrupt, spiritually broken neighborhood and pursues the broken, the weary, the thirsty, the hungry. This story is a beautiful picture of that. Now, as we heard Jordan read about this conversation about the Samaritan woman and Jesus, there's kind of some weird background stuff going on that we don't really understand. And it has to do with the Jews' relationship to the Samaritans. See, Samaria was originally the seat of the kingdom of Israel. Remember when the kingdom split between the house of David. After Solomon, the kingdom was torn in two and you had the kingdom in Judah, which was the southern area, and then you had the kingdom in Israel. Well, the kings of Israel ruled very wickedly. They did all sorts of unrighteousness and injustice. And so God brought in the Assyrians to bring judgment on them. And when that happened, they scattered the Israelites just throughout their Assyrian empire, but they left a handful of them in that region. And then what they did is they imported some of their own people. So what ended up happening is that those that were left there intermarried and you know, started families, and of course, they're religious people. And so they kind of grabbed a few scraps of the religion left over by the Jews. They had the first five books of the law. And so they based their understanding of God and worship upon that. And so the things that she's saying about, you know, well, we don't have dealings with one another, and you guys say that we should worship here, but we say that you should worship here, all of this has to do with this cultural background. See, the Jews, because the Samaritans were half-breeds, they were separated from them, they considered them outsiders, not part of the promises of God. Not only that, but they only had the first five books of the law, so they didn't have the understanding of where the temple should be. That came through Revelation to David. They didn't have an understanding of the Messiah coming through the line of David. All they have is the first five books. So there's all of these differences and suspicions that are going on here, and that's what's happening kind of in the background of this conversation. Because of all this, there's huge cultural, religious, political differences and tensions between the Jews and Samaritans. And that's why this conversation feels a little bit awkward. Okay? Now, John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This isn't necessarily true, like, like accurately. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. It's not like the only road to get to where he's going, there is actually a different road that Jews would take to avoid Samaria. But John tells us specifically, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And the word he uses here implies that Jesus was compelled or driven toward Samaria. And I really love that because I've been thinking about a teaching that we did a few weeks back where Jesus tells Nicodemus that those who are filled with the Spirit are like the wind that blows wherever it wishes. They're driven by the Spirit of God to do the work of God. And I think that John is actually highlighting this again. He's showing us Jesus compelled by the Spirit. He's driven. He has to go through Samaria. Why? because there is one soul who is in deep need of satisfaction. And so Jesus will make his way. He will be driven by the Spirit to this one thirsty soul. Now, let me just tell you, Jesus is so unconventional for his day. He's even unconventional for our day. And we can see this in the conversation between him and the woman. So we're told that he... He's thirsty, he's tired, so he sits down by the well. This woman walks up and he asks her for a drink because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, does it feel like she's a little dismissive? Like, don't talk to me. What do you think you're doing right now? Now, John says here in these little brackets, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But what John actually says in the original language is much stronger than that. And it speaks of this ethnic segregation. Literally, he says, the Jews will not share any sort of eating or drinking vessels with the Samaritans. It would be seen as un Clean. It would be seen as defilement. And this, remember, is a shame and honor culture where separation, cleanness keeps your honor and your honor for your people. So the woman is obviously shocked by Jesus' request and a bit dismissive of him. Not only that, but history records that a respectable Jewish man would not speak to a woman in public, not even his wife. Now, Let me just say, the Bible doesn't teach that. But in their religious zeal and in their obsession with cleanness and rightness, they put all of these laws and rules around the law of God so that they could just be extra, super careful not to ever defile themselves. So they created all this weird stuff. You can't talk to your wife in public? What in the world? So interesting how we have this history, even of the people of God, shaming, dishonoring those who have been created in the image and likeness of God. As we read it in Genesis, it is male and female who have been created in the image of God, created to rule. And yet, gosh, every time humans get their hands on this, we take away from it. It's wild. Well, that was just a normal Jewish man, but a devout Jewish rabbi would definitely avoid any sort of contact with a woman, and especially an immoral woman. But look at, not Jesus. He doesn't care about any of this stuff, which is amazing. Now, Tim Keller in his book, Encounters with Jesus, he, he notes this. He says, when Jesus begins to speak to this woman, he is deliberately reaching across almost every significant barrier that people can put up between themselves. In this case a racial barrier, a culture barrier, a gender barrier, a moral barrier, every convention of the time. Jesus is just blowing through it. It's amazing. That he, a religious male, he should have nothing whatsoever to do with her. He doesn't care. And Tim Keller notes, can you see how radical this is? He reaches right across all the human divides that we raise up, in order to connect to her. She is amazed, and we should be too. Now, I noted a few weeks back this story, and specifically that Jesus does not operate like anyone else around him. Not the religious leaders of the day, not his disciples. Jesus doesn't care about the cultural taboos or rules because Jesus cares about people. And he is on the mission to bring God's love and God's goodness, the righteousness and justice of God's kingdom to the earth. He is drawn toward people in need and he will cross whatever boundary is set up by culture, by religion or whatever to reach anyone with his love. Church, we need to remember this. What do we need to remember? If you're gonna follow Jesus, he's gonna take you places you do not want to go. He's going to bring you in the midst of people you do not like, that do not agree with your political views, that do not hold your same religious, sexual convictions. But he isn't taking there for the sake of your comfortability. He's taking you there so you can join in his mission to bring life, love, and goodness to people who are thirsting. We cannot forget that. I remember a couple years ago, this was back in the day when I was like, I think everybody was on Twitter. Now there's only like 10 of us. But I was on Twitter and saw one pastor said, you know, sometimes we, we talk as though, you know, God just wants to make our lives as comfortable as possible. He said, no, God is trying to raise us from the dead. He's trying to bring us a new life in his, new, in his name, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of engaging with the world. And we see that in Jesus' Now, Jesus begins to make this woman an offer. He says, actually, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And I just picture the woman being like, what are you talking about? So you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who drank from this well, his children, their flocks? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them, they'll never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life just like, Jesus just takes his heart left. We're talking about water, and he's like, I'm not talking about water. Jesus, of course, is speaking metaphorically when he refers to living water, because he also calls it eternal life. Now, of course, for ancient Jews, people living in the Near East, water played a significant role. Because to have water was to have life, it became this metaphor for Spiritual life, it became this metaphor for flourishing, for meaning, for purpose. And the scripture uses this again and again and again. Listen to what the psalmist says in the 63rd Psalm. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. So what's the psalmist doing? Looking around at the world, the things that everyone else is seeking after, and he's saying, what I'm really hungering and thirsting for is you, God. It's not any of this stuff. These are just things. But I'm hungering, I'm thirsting for you. Or another Psalm 42, as the deer pants. It's an interesting psalm. For the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Just a side note, I'm a musician. I love music and I love poetry and all these things. I just love the way the psalmist sees the world. I want to see the world like this. I want to see every blade of grass, every flower that blooms, every bird that sings, every grain of sand. I want to see the truth of God's goodness. I want to be reminded of these things. And I think that's actually why we have the book of Psalms, to engage with us in these ways. He looks at the deer. That's like me. I'm hungry. I'm thirsting like that for God. Now, in Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah kind of brings all of this together. God told the people of Judah that they had made this crucial error. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're weary. But they keep digging these cisterns, these wells that are cracked, and they can't hold water. And he says, and you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. See, Jesus is really bringing all of this conversation of scripture to this woman, specifically to her, specifically to her need. Jesus is saying what scripture has been saying all along. Humans are made for God. We're made to center our lives around him. And so Jesus is offering her this. I can give you the thing that you're really looking for, the thing that you're longing for. I can satisfy that. But still, I think, and we'll find this again and again in the Gospel of John, people are a little slow to understand Jesus. So she still thinks Jesus is talking about water, but Jesus is gonna take it a little bit deeper. So she says to him, sir, give me this water so then I don't have to be thirsty or keep coming here to drink, and so she's like, "Yeah, okay, go call your husband and come back." Oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, "Oh yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. So what you're saying is actually, yeah, it's accurate. I think you're a prophet." <laughs> Such a fascinating conversation. And then listen to what she does. This is so interesting. I think you're a prophet. Okay, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim. In Jerusalem, I love this. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers The Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. So when he comes, he'll figure it all out for us. And Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, that's me. I just want to know, this is the most candid Jesus is in all the gospel accounts. There is no one else that he discloses himself to, at least this far in the story, like this woman. It's amazing. When he talks to Nicodemus, he's kind of like, you know, hidden, cryptic. Oh, son of a man I must be lifted up. With this woman, he's just like, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Excuse me? Does it feel like Jesus changes the subject? They're talking about living water, and then the woman's like, yeah, I want that. And he's like, no, let's talk about your husband. What's happening? Why does Jesus want to talk about her history and her romantic relationships? Well, I don't think he's changing the subject. And I don't think Jesus brought this up to shame her, condemn her, rub her nose in it, or anything like that. I think Jesus brings us up to show her how thirsty she really is. She's getting there, right? They're having this conversation, and she's going a little deeper and a little deeper, and Jesus is drawing her in. And finally, she's like, I want that living water. Let's do it. And he's like, let's talk about the deep soul thirst that you have. He's pointing out how she keeps going back to the same thing to satisfy her thirst, thinking it will, but it never does. He's nudging her. Let's talk about this. Let's go deeper. Let's get to the heart of the matter, and that's this, that nothing in this world can give you what you're looking for. Only I can give that to you. This living water doesn't just apply to the surface. No, it goes all the way down to the depths, the core of your very being, who you are, your identity, your meaning and purpose in the world. That living water is meant to transform all of that, meant to quench and satisfy all of that. So Jesus is taking her all the way. See, the truth is, like this woman, each of us try to fill that inner thirst and lack with something or someone. Each of us. Even if you are a Jesus follower, you're a Christian and you've been so for many years, or you're even new to following Jesus, we're all the same. We're thirsty, we're hungry. And we're easily distracted. We're easily confused. We're easily drawn to, I think, salesmanship. You know, I mean, this is why Instagram is so big. This is why Facebook is so big because people are selling you their version of the good life. And we want it because we see the photos, we see the meals, we see the places that they go, we see the joy that's being put there, and we long for that. But see, all of that is just an echo and a whisper of the actual source. That's not the thing. You know, C.S. Lewis, he had this essay that he wrote, and he talked about this idea of my true country. This idea, you know, that if I find in myself a desire for which nothing in this world can fulfill, it would be logical to assume that I was created for another world we would call that world the kingdom of God. But if I am created for the kingdom of God, if I'm created for God, by God, then I must never let that understanding, that kind of north star of my life, I can never let it get snowed in. I can never forget it. And I need to come back again and again and again to that place to be reminded, to recalibrate according to that truth. Any of you guys spend any time in the ocean? I mean, we live right here, right? Isn't that funny, though? You can live right by the... Like, how far do you live from the ocean? Seven miles. How often do you go? Oh, once a year. If you ever go down, especially during the summer, you know, like pretty strong riptides. And as a kid growing up, surfing and going to the beach a lot, we would always use the lifeguard towers as kind of a marker for where we were at. And sometimes, I mean, it was amazing. You'd get in the water and that riptide would just take you. The current would just take you, you know, half a mile down the beach. You know, you're at... Tower 20, and all of a sudden you look back, you're at Tower 12, you're like, what the heck happened, right? I think this is kind of a metaphor for the human heart. We drift, we fall away, we get distracted, we get swept away in the cultural current with the shiny, nice thing, drawn into the salesmanship of the good life. But as each of us know and have experienced, Once we get that thing, it's not what we were really looking for. That's why they talk about the thrill of the chase. Because once you lay your hands on it, it's like, what's next? What's the next thing to conquer? The next thing to experience? And this is because these are only echoes and whispers of the true thing. The true country. The true love. The true water, that will satisfy. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The late author David Foster Wallace put it this way. He says, everybody worships. The choice we get is what to worship and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship. Well, pretty much, he says, anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Have you guys ever watched any of those documentaries on Marilyn Monroe? Or just some of these, like, you know, stars of Hollywood? And how they just begin to see their life falling apart, because they had based their life just all about their sex appeal, their beauty. And you watch as slowly as they lose that, as somebody younger, you know who gravity hasn't affected in all the ways comes along. It's true, it's true for all of us. They don't know who they are anymore. Story goes that Marilyn Monroe used to dress up and wear wigs and do all this stuff and go just to these dive bars just to get men to pick up on her just so she could feel a sense of empowerment again, again, so she could feel alive, like she had meaning. What he's saying is true. It is and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths even before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never ever, excuse me, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Wallace, David Foster Wallace, was not a religious individual, but he understood clearly that everyone worships something. Everyone trusts in something for their meaning and purpose in the world, for a kind of salvation from meaninglessness. Everyone bases their life on something. A couple years after this speech, Wallace actually took his own life, which is tragic. And this non-religious man's parting words to us are pretty terrifying, aren't they? Something will eat you alive. Now, our culture doesn't call it worship. I think David Foster Wallace is a little more honest than we like to be. But you can be sure, absolutely sure, that each human is worshiping, seeking after, scenting their life on something. The question is, do we have life in its name? Or does it take life again and again and again? Jesus is saying to this woman, to us, unless you worship me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless your spiritual thirst is quenched by me, you'll never be satisfied. And not only that, but whatever you worship besides him will abandon you in the end. It cannot save your soul. It will not forgive you or restore you when you fail it. It will eat you alive. And yet, Jesus has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. He is seeking us out in order to give us life. Now, here's where it gets a little uncomfortable for the woman and for us. She tries to avoid the hard issues and tries to change the subject to religious politics, which nothing apparently has changed in 2,000 years. Um, the best subject for distracting attention from, you know, kind of the frail, structures that we build our lives upon is, of course, religion or politics or just a little mix of both. So she goes that route, like, okay, let's talk about Jerusalem, let's talk about this, let's talk about that. Now, that isn't to say that people don't have legitimate questions and valid skepticisms, but I think many times we're just putting up smoke in order to hide our deeper issues behind, to avoid our true need being known or seen, but God sees it. He knows and he offers to satisfy it, to fill it, just like with this woman. I love what N.T. Wright comments on this passage. He says this, they're all excuses, and they are all irrelevant to the heart issue. Okay? They're not all excuses or all irrelevant, but to the heart issue, they are. He says, God's claim on every human life, that's what it really comes down to and God's offer of a new kind of human life for all those who will give up the stagnant water and come to him for the living variety. This offer is absolute. See, Jesus offers us life in his name. He offers to satisfy this, but in order to do so, we must exchange the moldy, stagnant water that we've been drinking from. In this woman's case, it was her married, or rather her unmarried life, but what is it for us? And I wonder even now as I'm saying this, if there's something in you that you, you know you've been going to, you're looking for meaning and purpose and satisfaction in, but you know deep down that it actually can't do that for you. The truth is a human soul is much too unique, much too important for anything in this world to satisfy it because the truth is you were made for God and your soul is restless until it rests in him. In fact, that's actually one of the truest things about you. You were made for God. You were made for his love. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He is the fuel that the human engine was created to run on. We're made for his love. We're made to hear his word of affirmation over us. Remember what he says to Jesus at the baptismal waters? You are mine, I love you, and I am pleased with you. This affirmation, this word of love is for anyone and everyone who will take it. But you have to turn in the stagnant water you're drinking from. He wants to take it from you, and he wants to deeply satisfy you. Now, there's a story in the life of David that has radically affected my life and the way that I see the world, because I am one of those people that is given to the vision of the good life. Um, If I get into something, I'm all in. I started a record collection maybe, you know, 10 years ago, and now I have, like, over 300 records. I buy things I don't need. I buy guitars I don't play. Like, I'm that guy. And you might be that girl. So years and years ago, I kept doing this thing where, like, you know, I'm chasing after something, and I find out, like, oh, it's all the thrill of the chase. That's what it is for me. So I'm reading in the story of the life of David, And remember, there's that story after David has murdered Uriah, slept with an impregnated Bathsheba, everything's quiet. He thinks it's covered and everything's okay. But the prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells him the story about a man in his kingdom who was very wealthy, had many sheep and, you know, just like exuberant wealth. And friends come over for dinner. And so what he does is he goes over to his neighbor's house who has one tiny lamb that the guy sleeps with. Like, it's like his dog, you know, it's like his pet that he loves. The guy takes that lamb, kills it, cooks it, feeds it to his friends. And David says, not happening in my kingdom. That man's going to die. <laughs> and Nathan, I imagine him chuckling. He's like, Dave, David, this is a story about you. God says to you, David, I took you from being a shepherd of your father's sheep. And I gave you the kingdom of Israel. I gave you the household of Saul. I gave you power and prestige and wealth and all these things. And then this is what he says. And that if that were not enough, I would have done much, much more. Church, hear that. Because every single one of us is susceptible to the shiny bright thing to the various visions and salesmanship of the good life. If you're hungry or you're thirsty, where are you gonna go? And what do you think you're gonna find? What are you looking for? And where do you think you'll find it? Because God says, I'm the fountain of living waters. I am the source of all life, love, and goodness. If you're hungry, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, I'll satisfy you. God offers this to us again and again and again. Now, I want to close, but I want to do one thing real quickly. I want to contrast this story with the story of Nicodemus because I think it's pretty fascinating. I did this a little bit in the beginning. But I mentioned a few weeks back in our teaching Nicodemus being a very good religious moral person. And I think John includes him in the story because he's kind of the best the world has to offer. He's good, he's righteous, he's pure, he's you know, elite, he has honor and power, all of these things. And yet, we know from the narrative, he's still confused, he's a seeker. And I believe John means to contrast Nicodemus with this woman. It's interesting in scripture, when someone doesn't have a name, it's actually indicating their station in life, kind of where they sit on the totem pole. So Nicodemus is named, the woman is just called the Samaritan woman. This is on purpose, it's a sign of her low estate. Of course, secondly, we know Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, he has incredible honor. This woman is a Samaritan. And John has already told us about what the Jews think about Samaritans. She also seems to be ostracized from her own people. She comes to the well at noon, which is in the heat of the day rather than in the cool of the morning or in the evening when people normally went to draw water. It could be that she is avoiding the community that she lives in because she is filled with shame. People won't even look at her. They don't want to be seen talking to her or near her She's someone that would have been considered suspect in a shame and honor culture because of her many failed marriages and now her current cohabitation. And yet, Jesus pursues her. Not only that, but Jesus says the Father is seeking. The Spirit is compelling, Jesus is pursuing, and the Father is seeking. And I think it's interesting just to note, it's not that Nicodemus is not welcome, it's none of that, but remember, in a shame honor culture, in a Jewish culture, John is doing this on purpose. Nicodemus pursues Jesus, Jesus pursues the woman. Nicodemus starts a conversation with Jesus, Jesus starts a conversation with the woman. Nicodemus is told, shrouded, and, you know, kind of hidden metaphors. The Son of Man must be lifted up on the pole like the serpent. The wind blows where it wishes. Everybody like the Spirit does this. And with this woman, Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I have living water, and I can satisfy your deepest need." Why is John contrasting these two? I believe it is because God is seeking the most unlikely people to know him and to be his and to experience life in his name. The Father is seeking. The Spirit is driving. Jesus is pursuing. And it continues to this very day. God is doing that work here in our county. In the various cities and neighborhoods where he has planted us, God is seeking worshipers. And guess what? The most unlikely people are seeking after God. It may not look that way. They could be into Baha'i. They could be dabbling in Islam. They could be doing all sorts of stuff. And you know what's funny? We get annoyed with this stuff. Oh, come on. Oh yeah, my brother, my sister, they're into this whole thing now. I don't think God is annoyed. Spiritual seeking is a sign of true thirst. It's a sign of a dissatisfaction with the status quo. And if people are created by God and for God, we should know and believe and be convicted by this truth. Wherever they drink, other than Jesus, they will not be satisfied. So drink away. Seek. Seek. Ask, knock, check it out, go ahead. We're not afraid. But we can continue to be those resources of living water, saying if you're really thirsty, we have something in Jesus that will satisfy you to the very core of your being. Are we willing to be those channels of grace? Are we willing to be those patient individuals that will give people time to reconsider their life at a deep level? Will we be those who will be unoffended by people's questions, skepticisms, and even oftentimes rejections of the gospel? Will we hang in there? Will we cross whatever cultural, ethnic, sexual, political barriers? Because we know the Father is seeking, the Spirit is compelling, and Jesus is pursuing. I pray that we will become a church that will. This is how we follow Jesus, wherever he goes. Now in the end, this woman leaves Jesus in her water jug and she goes in the town and tells everyone. It's interesting how John uses this. These are the same words that are used by the disciples. We have found the Messiah, the King of Israel, come and see. She becomes an evangelist. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see. And guess what? Everybody comes. She becomes an evangelist because this woman found in Jesus something, excuse me, someone that knew her thoroughly and loved her unreservedly. And from that place, she went and told everyone else about it. She found this deep, deep love in Jesus, a love that her husband and her boyfriend could never satisfy or actually anything else in this world. Now it's fascinating to realize that all of this takes place because Jesus is both compelled by the Spirit but also he's tired and thirsty. I want you to think about that for a minute. All of this is possible because Jesus is tired, because Jesus is thirsty. Now, if we know the Gospel of John, we know that Jesus is not your average human being. He is the eternal Son of God who has taken on human flesh, become one of us in order to rescue and redeem us. So he subjects himself to weariness, to hunger, to thirst, and yes, in the end of the story, even death itself. When we think about that, this fact of Jesus' tiredness and his thirst becomes pretty astounding. This woman has this life-giving experience with Jesus, all because Jesus was thirsty. And if he had not been thirsty or weary, he would not have gone to the well, and she would not have found living water. Now, at the climax of John's gospel, all of this is brought into clear view because Jesus will cry out from the cross, not about the pain of the lashings. He will not cry out about the asphyxiation that he is experiencing or the pain in his hands or in his feet, but he will cry out from the cross, I thirst. And the reader should hear these words with absolute horror how could it be that the living water has run dry? Is Jesus just like everyone else? He was living his life according to a certain narrative, but now look in this moment of agony at the face of death, he himself is thirsty. No, the truth is that Jesus, the fountain of living waters ran dry so that we could drink deeply of God's life-giving water. On the cross, Jesus is being emptied for us so we can be filled. This is why he came, to bring us life in his name. He didn't just thirst. He wasn't just wearied by the well, church. He went all the way to the cross. That is how much, that is how far God will go to pursue, to seek worshipers, to bring human beings back into his love. It's astounding. Now this morning, as we close this part of our gathering, you know, we talk about the close, but it's really the climax because we have this opportunity today to do exactly what this passage is talking about, to drink from the well of living water. And we do that by taking this bread, which symbolizes the body of Jesus broken for us on the cross. We do this by taking this cup, which symbolizes his blood being poured out, washing and cleansing us, making us new. We drink from him by coming to this table and saying, I'm thirsty. Will you satisfy me? We we do this by coming to this table and saying, Lord, can I give you the stagnant water I've been drinking? And can I receive from you? We do that by recalibrating our lives around him and his person. And so as the band comes out and leads us in songs of just reflection and worship, gratitude, we have that opportunity to stand up to come with our whole being and to say, I want life in his name. I want to turn away from the waters I've been drinking from, from the narratives that I've been buying into, and I want to say, will you give me a drink of that living water? So let's do that. And if this is, like this morning, if like, something deeper is happening inside of you, you need to tell somebody about that. You need to share that. Not so we can say, oh, cool, somebody, no, so we can encourage you, so we can walk with you, so we can share our own stories of how God has done this in our lives as well, and we can walk together and follow in the way of Jesus from this forward, for, excuse me, from this day going forward. And so our pastors will be available up front, afterwards we'll be in the courtyard, and then of course we're going to head out, and we're going to have a baptism, We're gonna celebrate those who have given their lives to Jesus and those who are saying, I'm with Jesus from here to kingdom come. Amen? Amen.